I'm going to use Genesis 17 as a springboard to talk a little bit about God's covenants um, and then this idea of circumcision. Ultimately, I want to land on this concept that is used in both the Old and the New Testament um, called circumcision of the heart and what that is. Um, and even how we build on that as God's people. I feel like it's one of the things that has become less and less talked about in the church is the, the inner person and fortifying the inner person, the, the part of us that moves on into eternity when these outward bodies die, these shells or these tents, um, as Paul uh, might describe it. <clears throat> when, we, when we put this body off, that inner person goes to be with the Lord. Um, in Genesis chapter 17, uh, we are catching up with Abraham. Um, and I suppose I told Jessica, Jessica was so good to make slides. I told her I was going to read part of 15. Maybe we still will, um, just to get a little bit of the context as to what's going on. Um, in chapter 15, uh, we see God actually going through the process of making a covenant with Abraham. Um, if you've been here over the weeks we've been talking about Abraham, you have noticed that there's this constancy of God coming to Abraham and telling him, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you your descendants. I'm going to give you uh, descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky or uh, like the dust of the earth. Um, and up to this point in chapter 15, he's not yet seen that son. Uh, and he's kind of curious as to when is all this going to happen. Um, God calls him at 75. When we jump into this um, work that God is going to call Abraham to do, uh, that's going to mark this covenant that God has given him, we're going to see that he's 99. So quite some time has passed. Um, in between 15 and 17 is chapter 16. And you guys know that, Mark. <laughs> but what happens in chapter 16, it's the, it's the Hagar saga where Sarah tells Abraham, hey, why don't you just take my maidservant Hagar and go be with her and have a child with her? That they felt like they needed to help God, apparently. Um, and God makes it very clear in chapter 17 and 18 that that son, Ishmael, is not the son that God was promising them. That, that they were going to have a son that would begin this process of these many descendants with a son named Isaac through Sarah. He even changes Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah. And I have no idea why or what that even means because Sarai means princess. And Sarah means princess. So it kind of leaves you wondering what's going on there. And I feel like there's so many parts of this story that kind of leave you bewildered as to what is happening. Um, explaining a little bit in chapter 15, we're just going to read it. Let's look at, let's start in verse 7. Um, previously, because remember, he was with Lot, his nephew. Lot was captured um, by these kings uh, in Mesopotamia, I believe it was. And um, ultimately, he has to muster his men and go and rescue Lot and bring them back. Uh, and when he brings them back, Lot, who was situated in Sodom, um, is won back, uh, all the people of his household, all his goods. And the king of Sodom comes to Abraham and says, hey, you know what? Give me the people you can keep the stuff. And Abraham says, nope, absolutely not. 
because it'll never be said that you made Abraham rich, but he relies upon God. Um, and he even uses the name that Melchizedek, this priest king of a place called Salem, calls God. Um, Melchizedek says, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Um, when he talks with Sodom, he calls him the exact same name. And then when we show up in verse 7, it's almost as if God is telling Abraham, great job for being faithful. I am going to bless you. And he said in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Okay, so, so he, he pretty much made this bloody mess. Okay, he had to take a heifer, cut it in half, put half of it here, half of it there. Take this three-year-old goat, cut it in half, half of it here, half of it there. And then the birds, it says he didn't cut them in half, but he set them in to be a part of this process. And what this was is Abraham understood God saying, we're going to make a covenant. Because this was the process. And when you would take the animals and cut them in half and you had this bloody mess, there was like this canal of blood that the people in the covenant would walk through as to say that I will become like these animals if I go back on my promise. So God is setting this up for Abraham. And Abraham understands what's going on, and he figures at some point he's probably going to have to walk through this bloody mess in this covenant relationship that is being established with God. In verse 12, as the sun was going down, Abraham's waiting. A deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, now or know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." Um, that latter part, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, I believe, is an indication that God was actually going to use Israel as a tool of judgment on the paganism, on the nasty rituals that were happening in that land. And he was going to give that land to Israel. They would move into Canaan and they would own it. In verse 17, it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God passed through the canal of blood made by those animals. God made the covenant 
with Abraham. Abraham did not pass through the animals, which I find very interesting, which, which can only be saying one thing. There's one person responsible for this covenant, and who is that? God. God. I, I've even heard it said that as God passed through the canal of blood of these animals, that he wasn't just saying that he was going to uphold his part of the bargain, and that if he failed to uphold his part, may he become like these animals. But he was also saying that he was going to uphold Abraham's part of the bargain. And if Abraham failed, then he, God, would become like these animals. And some people look at this as a projection to Christ and the purpose of the cross. Because we know the story the people of God didn't remain faithful to him. Okay, but God would use it. He would use it. God is constantly showing us these glimpses throughout the scripture of the bigger plan of what he's doing and the salvation of man and this being brought through the Jews. And that's the point that's being made here in this covenant that God is making with Abraham as well, that God is going to be responsible in the end. Look in Chapter 17, there are a number of covenants that God makes in the Old Testament. Up to this point, he says that he is going to do the work. Um, when Adam and Eve sin and God is handing out the curse, he makes a promise that to, to the serpent, he says, that her seed, that there's going to be this animosity between your seed and her seed. And he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That that will happen. It's going to happen. We know that to be a projection of Jesus. Noah, when Noah comes through the flood, God makes this promise to Noah that he would never flood the earth again, that he would never wipe out the civilization of humanity. And he gives them a promise. And he says that the sign of that promise is what? It's the rainbow. Okay, that every time you see this, it's a reminder to you of the promise that God made that he is not, although he's fully aware that humanity is still going to be sinful, he's making a promise and that the rainbow is the reminder of that promise. Um, he gives them a sign by that rainbow. And here in chapter 17, that's what he's going to do with Abraham regarding this covenant that he's making with Abraham that there will be a sign that you are my people. Let's read it. Chapter 17, we're going to read most of this chapter. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I keep saying Abraham. It's, we're going to get there, I promise. He says to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. All of a sudden, God is using this, this language of condition. There's a condition that I'm going to put on this covenant. Okay, before, he's just saying, hey, I, I'm going to give you this, a son, a descendants, this land. Now he's saying, Abraham, you have responsibility. You need to be blameless. And he's saying, be blameless. He's saying, hey, you need to not waver on the condition that I'm about to put on this deal. 
all of a sudden now God's beginning to bring this concept of work that Abraham is going to have to take as a part of this covenant with God. In verse 3, then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Thank God, because now I can say it. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Here it comes. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. We haven't heard that. Now God is going to put a condition on Abraham in this covenant. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you must be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God sets a condition, and the condition is circumcision. I've never seen a movie about this chapter of the Bible, by the way. Um, I, I don't think we will. Um, first things first, guys, think, think of a covenant in this covenant that God is making, um, and it's going to grow as Moses steps onto the scene. As we know, they, they, they exit Egypt, and they go out into the desert, and then the Mount Sinai incidents take place, and they receive the law from God. And it's this expansion of this covenant There's this deal between God and Israel that they will be his people if they abide by this covenant. They abide by the law, the things that God would bring forward in um, Leviticus and and, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, um, the law and the recap of the law. Um, I think it's good to note that what we're reading right now in Genesis, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, we we know these to be books that Moses wrote. It's called the Book of Moses, those five books. I mean, Moses is writing these books just before they step into the promised land. Okay, he's letting them remember the covenant that they have made with God. That if God is going to dwell amongst them and in their camp, there are these rules of engagement that need to take place. That's what the covenant is. There's a behavior that needs to be established between the infinite, almighty, perfect, 
holy being of the universe and broken, untrustworthy, sinful humans. There's, there's got to be some rules. If there was a guy who had just gotten out of prison that's a friend of yours and you hadn't seen each other in 10, 15, 20 years and you take them into your house, I hope you have some rules. You wouldn't just let them move in with no rules. You got to set some guidelines because you want to protect the people in your house. You don't want them to wind up reverting back to this criminal mindset. You know, maybe there might be, be people that they're still connected with. And, you know, if you're going to be in my house, you got to sever those relationships. I do not want those kinds of people around my children. And, and you, you got to get a job. I'm going to expect you to pay rent. Okay, there's this process of bringing that person to independence to where they can go out and be good citizens of society, right? So you would expect there would be rules for an individual who is trying to reintegrate into society. Well, in the very same way, God establishes a covenant with his people that if they are going to have a relationship and he dwell with them, there's got to be some guidelines. There's got to be some rules. I'm going to read a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He's encouraging, Moses is encouraging the people not to forget who they are in the covenant commandments they received at Mount Sinai. As he says in verse 6, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are a people who have been set apart. You have been made different because you have a relationship with the God of the universe. You've been set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest, the least of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. And by the way, this isn't just a sentiment of hate. That is included. But there's this stance of stiffness and rejection of God. That they, they know exactly what is required for them to be able to dwell in the presence of God and they make light of it. They, they hate it. They reject it. They, they push it away. It says, he will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. In the land that he swore to your fathers to give you, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you. 
but he will lay them on all who hate you. Does that sound like a pretty good deal? Sounds like a pretty good deal. But it's kind of a catch-22. Because the covenant in the, like the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The elements of the covenant, they would not keep. Um, We know that it became this curse on Israel because Israel would get into the promised land. They would see these other gods and they would begin to pursue after these other gods and they would commit idolatry. That's why God says that they are an adulterous generation because there was a covenant. You see the picture? When two people get married, they enter into a covenant. It's a lifelong covenant. I have yet to do a marriage where we slice animals apart and the bride and groom walk through those animals. I think we should re-adopt that. <laughs> it might put a little more urgency on the commitment that's being made. Um, but marriage is a covenant. And it's ultimately the picture that's being brought forth in this relationship that God has with Israel. That there is this relationship that is special and unique amongst all of humanity between God and his people Israel. But there's also an expectation in that relationship. There are rules of engagement. As a man with a wife, I can't just go and beat my wife up. Even within our vows of marriage, we, we vow to forsake all others, to keep ourselves to them and them only, to, to honor them and respect them and cherish them, to listen to them. We're making a covenant. How well we keep that covenant, I don't know. I think marriage is a beautiful example of the relationship and Israel, although we might not be adulterers and leave and forsake our marriage, and maybe some of us have, and we've seen the consequence that that brings upon the family, our hearts are still in a place where they really need some work. And there's no better relationship than a marriage relationship to bring that to light. I remember when we first got married, I realized how selfish I was. Actually, my bad, she was. Um, I mean, you see it on both ends. The moment you get married, you begin to realize that, hey, wait, something's not right. Like, it has been so easy for me to serve me and do all the things that I need to be gratified in this life, and now all of a sudden, it's got opposition? I don't understand. Why can't they see what I need? (laughs) And they're not willing to give it. I thought they loved me. I thought they loved me. Um, The covenant between God and his people were designed to be a mutual agreement between God and Israel, which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and his people, somewhat of an if-then or a double-edged sword. If you obey my commandments, then I will bless you, give you land, protect you, prosper you above all people. But if you do not, then I will curse you, and you will be judged as one who hates God and be repaid by death 
unprotected, scattered, and no land, no blessing, and no prosperity. We look back on Israel and we see when Israel begins to give itself to idolatry and the nation actually splits, the northern kingdom, Israel, never has a king that seeks after God. And they would be obliterated first and exiled out into Assyria. The Assyrians would come and destroy Israel. And then afterward, there were some kings in the southern kingdom in Judah who honored God. Every now and then you would get one that would rise up. But ultimately, they too would reach a place of no return. And God would have Babylon come in and destroy them along with the temple. Okay, so the worship of God in the way that they know it in the, in the desert, how it would be established at Mount Sinai, is done because they turned their backs on God. And God follows through on the commitment that's being made here. But I think it's very interesting that even though Assyria and Babylon come in and destroy God's people, their land, they take it from them, the throne is revert, revoked, well, revoked and cursed. Okay, God curses the king of Judah and says, there will never be another son from your line, from you, that will sit upon the throne again. And we see historically that's true. Because they turned their backs on God. They broke the commandment between, or the, the covenant between them and God. The amazing thing is God allows them to come back from exile for another chance. Not because they were worthy of it, but because God made a covenant with Abraham and he was going to keep it. God was going to keep his covenant. His covenant was doing a few things. One, it was establishing who God is among the nations. When he made this covenant with Israel, part of that was that they would be a light to the Gentiles, that they would be a light to the world, to let the world know who God is. Okay, you saw what happened in Egypt. When they left Egypt, God brought all of these plagues, the death of the firstborn. Finally, Pharaoh's like, get out of here. And before they leave, they asked their masters for their gold, and they plundered them. They gave it to them. Um, the things that God told Abraham came true right here. And Moses is reminding them in the telling of the story. Enslaved for 400 years, now sent out into the desert, set free by the miracle, miracles of God. And that word would get around fast. People would know who the Jews are. How do we know? Well, they're about to enter into the land. There's this city called Jericho. As they send spies into the city, there's this prostitute living in the city who finds the spies. She hides them and says, hey, have mercy on me and my family. We have heard of your God. And the people are afraid because they know you're coming across the Jordan to us. Will you save me and my family? They knew of God. He made himself known. They get into the promised land, and there's these people called the Gibeonites who recognize who Israel is, and, and they are good at deception. They roll up on horses with tattered clothes and these flasks that are empty and food that's stale. They're like, man, we've come on this long journey, and we've come, and we want to we be allies with you. We want to make a treaty with you. These guys live next door. 
but they understood that God was giving the land to Israel. So they cut a deal. I mean, it goes all the way to the elders of Israel. And they say, yeah, we'll make a treaty with you. And then they find out that they got deceived. And they're like, what are you doing to us? You lied to us. He says, yeah, we knew that your God was coming to take the land and was going to give it to you. So they become their servants. Better to be a servant than to die. They saved their people. Okay, so you have all these people who are understanding who God is through this covenant with Israel. Um, And then ultimately, God is planning to bring in this salvation of man through this covenant. And we know, and I mean, we just kind of looked at it for Easter, um, the coming of Jesus. He is going to give the, the Messiah the responsibility of taking on the weight of the world so that mankind can enter into a relationship with God, a covenant relationship with God. I don't know if you've ever known that, but Old Testament means Old Covenant, and the New Testament means New Covenant. This new covenant that's brought through Christ. What is the requirement of that new covenant? Well, Jesus tells us, um, it's very clear that, that we are to believe on him. Okay, he, he gives a commission to the church. He says, go make, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all my commandments. Okay, Paul, Paul puts it in a nutshell. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that he has risen from the grave, you shall be saved. You shall be drawn into the family of God as one of God's people, and a sign or his spirit will be given to you that you will be known as God's people to God, that you enter into this relationship with him. And the language begins to change a little bit you begin to have these moments where Jew and Christian have this battle about how that salvation is to take place. There's this tension in the church. And and the Jews are saying circumcision is necessary for salvation. And the Christians are saying it's not. As a matter of fact, Paul and Barnabas go to bat in Acts chapter 15 Verse 1, it says, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So these brothers go on a journey to Jerusalem Um, And they bring these things up. They talk about what God is doing amongst the Gentiles. And long story short, they wind up writing a letter. They get a letter from Peter and James in this conversation that they have with the elders of the church. They're in Jerusalem, and and they send some faithful men of God back with them with this letter that basically says you don't have to be circumcised for salvation. And... The very next chapter, we see Paul with a disciple named Timothy that Paul takes. Oh, by the way, Timothy's mom was Jewish and his dad was Greek. And they saw that Timothy was a faithful man. It's the letters. This is the same guy he wrote the letters to. 
before they go on their missionary journey, before he allows Timothy to come with him, he takes him and gets him circumcised. Because that's a, that's a, that's a missionary move. Because they know they're going to do mission work. They're going to bring the gospel. They're going to be reaching out to a people who are Jewish people. And in order to save some headache, some arguments, he just has Timothy circumcised. He's not saying that Timothy's circumcision is his salvation. Okay, we see that Paul is constantly saying that it's not the tenets of the law that brings salvation. It's the grace of God. Okay, and he actually says that it's this, this circumcision of the heart that we're called to walk in. In Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read it and make a point and then hopefully shut up before the time is out. In Romans chapter 2, this is really long. I don't know if I can read this whole thing. He talks about the hypocrisy of trying to keep the law, um, ultimately saying that the, the name of God is blasphemed because you're telling people to keep the law and you yourself don't keep it. So you're the opposite of what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be this revelation of God in amongst humanity and the uh, opportunity to dwell in relationship with God, but yet you have people stiff-arming this relationship with God because of your hypocrisy. And then he says... says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For the circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is his circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. So it's not, this, it's not this outward working in these, these things that, that we're supposed to uphold. Okay, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't do the good that God says is good. We are to do that. But it doesn't lead to my salvation. Okay, the grace of Christ is what leads to my salvation. And that's the point that Paul is making. The reason I go and I begin to do the good is because I have a relationship that's been given to me by the grace of Christ that I can now walk in and I want to see people blessed. I want to please God. I want to be a vessel that's filled with his spirit so that other people can see the light of Christ working through me. That God would be glorified. That we should do our good works before men so that they might glorify our Father in heaven. Who said that? Who reads the Bible? <laughs> that was Jesus. I may have misquoted it, but he said something like that. 
But what Paul's doing is he's borrowing some Old Testament terms. He's obviously talking about the circumcision that's referred to um, with Abraham and then ultimately in the law of Moses that would cause God's people to identify with the relationship of God, a part of the covenant that's supposed to be kept. But he's talking about a circumcision of the heart. See, it changes as we enter into this new covenant with God. Because this covenant is based on the grace of God. He has done it. He walked through the animals. He walked through the bloody mess and said that he would take it upon himself if the covenant was broken. Well, the covenant was broken and he took it upon himself in Jesus. And God establishes a new covenant in grace that we would live in the grace of Christ, that we would look to the work that was done on the cross so that we can know that our relationship with God is secure, that, that I can't blow this up because I am not a good person. And, then, and there are things that, that I go and do, maybe even look good, but my heart is bad. So God changed me. God circumcised my heart Okay, um, in Deuteronomy, when he uses this concept in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says, the Lord God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God. You hear that? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. That word heart that he's using there, okay, the, the Hebrew term is talking about the inner person. It's not talking about this thing that's pumping in my chest. It's talking about the inner being, the inner being that the, the inner being would live in relationship with the holy God of the universe because that's the image that you bear in your body. You bear the image of God. You were designed to be in relationship with God and to know him, to walk with him. In Colossians, speaking about Christ, Paul says, in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head and rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you Gentiles, you who were not a nation, you who didn't have a relationship with God, It's you, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. A new covenant has been made. You can know God through Christ. It is by grace through faith that your salvation comes to you. It is the work of God. It's not by human hands. 
but it is the work of God that we would have this circumcision of the heart, this identity that would be born into us as the children of God. We've been given this right, this glorious right to be called the children of God. I'm going to end with this passage in Ephesians chapter 3. And actually, I'm going to use my electronic Bible to get there because it's faster. Um, If you have a Bible, why don't you turn there? Ephesians chapter 3. If you have a highlighter, I'm going to encourage you to highlight this. Because we're going to look at a prayer that Paul prays. Um, In the ESV, it titles it Prayer for Spiritual Strength. I think this is an element that as God's people, we need to live in. Okay, it's, it's feeding the inner person. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out some elements, some ways to feed the inner person. Um, fasting. I don't, I don't know how many people in here have ever fasted, but I'm not just going to say fast, but I'm going to say fast and pray. Okay, this isn't the effort to lose weight. It's not the effort to detox, although that happens. You see the symbiotic relationship we have here? Because your body begins to push all the toxins out of it, and all of a sudden, like that third day, man, I feel good. You get clarity of thought. Well, you're to now take that physical part of you and merge it with the spiritual and go and set before God in a clear, not foggy, in a clear dwelling or, or you hanging out with him. And maybe it's getting in the word and studying the scriptures. The fasting coupled with prayer. The first time we did that as a church, it was the first time I had ever fasted for more than 12 hours. And we went for a week. And I remember in day two, I was angry. I had an emotional response that was happening because I couldn't eat food because of this legalistic church we go to that tells us that we have to fast for a week. What benefit is there in that? This is stupid. I can read my Bible at any point. I can pray whenever I want. Thank God we did it. Because that was my flesh telling me, stop it. Don't don't pursue the things of the Spirit. But see, I had to learn that. I I had to strengthen the inner person. Like Paul tells us in this prayer. He tells us to strengthen the inner person. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Verse 14 in chapter 3 from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Why? Why do you need that filling? Because you live in a physical, God-rejecting world, God-denying world. And you're called to be the evidence and the light of this covenant, this relationship that God wants with every human. And it's impossible. You can't do it by joining forces and doing things the human way. You've got to revert to the spiritual For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God, able to bring down strongholds and cast down every argument that exalts itself up against God. 
that we would invest in the inner person, that we would invest in this attempt to strengthen the inner being that we as God's people carry and have united with the author of life, the God of the universe. We've got to respond in the spirit as God's people. We have to. That's what enables us to turn the other cheek when we need to turn the other cheek and not respond in the flesh and play the get back game. That's what helps us go the extra mile when, when someone wants to use us or we can see through their scam, but yet we want them to know that I willingly serve you even though your attempt is to do evil to me. I'm attempting to do good to you. And that when you want to curse me and you hurl all kinds of things at me, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to speak blessing and encouragement to you. See, if I'm strengthened in my inner man, the temptation isn't so strong to play the get back game. Because I'm fortified in my inner person. So now I can be a light and do those good works that would cause people to glorify my Father in heaven. That I can be salt. I can be light. Because my heart is circumcised before the Lord. I I, want to pursue him in love. There's a relationship there. And I know my responsibility in that relationship is to reflect him, to completely submit to his will in his way. Why? Because I don't belong to me. I am his. By this covenant relationship, I belong to him.